As I've been working through all these studies and looking at the current state of science and where people are with our God, it is pretty amazing the extent to which people go to believe most anything except that there is a creator who loves them. I reread a couple of books this last week to kind of refresh my mind. Two by Stephen Jay Gould and one by Richard Dawkins. At least skimmed them and kind of was just looking through the arguments against the Creator. And they're just as limp as they have been for the last 30 or 40 years. There's simply no scientific evidence that causes me to move even the slightest away from a firm belief that there is a God in heaven who is infinite, who is the uncaused cause of absolutely everything else, who by himself from nothing created everything that is. And I'm perfectly good with believing that based on the evidence that is presented before us even in our natural world. And so as we continue tonight, uh, picking up the remainder of the fifth day and part of the sixth day of creation, I want to do a little bit of a review. And before we do that, let's pray and ask God to speak to us again through the amazing wonder of the book of Genesis, his word. Father, we are so grateful that our faith is not without reason, or that our hope and trust Uh, is not just in science, it's not in mathematics, it's not in genetics, it isn't in chemical properties, it's not in the information age. Our hope and trust is in God Almighty, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the great I am, the one who was and is and is to come, and the one who forever will be, the first and the last. And so, God, we pray that from heaven you'd speak into us tonight your wonderful truths. We bless your name for this compact report that you placed in the book of Genesis that helps us see our natural world through eyes of faith. Pray that you'd cause our faith to grow and that our reason would be tested, Lord, so that we can give that account of the hope that lies within us, Lord, for all things. So bless our time together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And God's people all said, Amen. So as we've looked at the creation account, as we begin in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. And remember, as we began there, how you begin in the beginning is critical to everything that follows the way you think and the way that you understand information. And that's not a Christian principle. That is a, that's a principle of reason. We all start with basic assumptions. Uh, Everyone in this room, there's a basic assumption that the laws of gravity and physics are acting upon your body even now. The reason I know that, there's almost no one in here who can step up on the backs of one of those pews and walk across that little tiny two-inch piece of oak that's on there. Why? Because your sense of balance is not sufficient to keep you in that place, and surely gravity will overtake you and you'll break something. Amen? So there are assumptions that you deal with on a daily basis in our natural world that the Bible doesn't speak against. The Bible actually confirms those things. 
And so one of the reasons that we look at science through the lens of Scripture and we do not simply try and justify what the scientific world says and toss the Bible out is because there is a basic prism through which all things need to be justified. As a believer in Christ Jesus as Lord, you need to be able to say that Genesis 1-1 is just as true as John 3-16. And if you can't do that, then you have a fundamental problem with what you understand about your Bible. Because if Genesis chapter 1 is not true, then I would just ask you a simple question. How do you know that any of the rest of the Bible is true? You need to believe it all, or I would say to you, you're not being intellectually honest about believing any of it. And furthermore, your faith would then come into reason, because what do you have faith in? Do you just have faith in verses of the Bible that you like, like we're saved by grace and through faith, or do you have faith that God told the truth about what happened in the first six days in which he created the universe and everything in it? I believe you have to have both of those things from the same position Otherwise, you have a fundamental problem with your reasoning capacity. You also have a fundamental problem with your faith. And so the first five days as we've seen them thus far, God creates what we know in our physical world is that space, time, matter, and energy uh, component that is everything that we know. In other words, there is nothing outside that we are understanding today. People will tell you, well, we think there's all kinds of dimensions of space that we can't see. That may well be true. That may not be true. But in a physical, testable universe, we know that everything that we can see and everything that we can test is made up of space, time, matter, and energy, period. There's nothing else. So we know that God created that on the first day. We know about our world, that our world consists of a bunch of different component parts, All of them are unique, and all of them are necessary. So on the second day, God creates our atmosphere. He creates our hydrosphere. He creates the air that you breathe, the space that birds fly in, and he creates the hydrological cycles that keep the planet cool. He creates all of the things necessary for us to have that all-important liquid that is about 86% in some cases, as little as 76% in others, of your entire being, your whole body is made up mostly of water. And so the hydrosphere is very important because you need to stay hydrated. How many times has your doctor told you, stay hydrated? How many times when you're out doing something, stay hydrated? The reason being your body needs water almost as as much as it needs food. And in some cases, you will die quicker from, from thirst than you will from hunger. So... We need those things. God creates those on the second day. The third day, he creates what we call the lithosphere, and that's basically the surface that we walk on in this planet, the hard surface. The planet itself has dry land, and the planet itself has a surface that's water. Most of it is water, but the dry land part, God creates that because there's got to be a space for us to exist because he doesn't create us as fish. He makes us as people. Uh, We weren't made like dolphins, which we saw some yesterday when we were out on the fishing boat with the guys. We had a whole pot of dolphins off the bow of the boat, uh, just going crazy. But you weren't created that way. You were created in the image of God. And as much as people love Flipper, God's not Flipper. Okay? So you were created in his image. So he creates an earth surface for us to live on. He, He then creates the wonders that we would call outer space or a or the sidereal space, that, that when we look into the heavens 
Uh, as we look out at the galaxies and the star systems and the stars that are out there, some of the things that you see are planets, very few of them. Most of them are galaxies. Those galaxies, almost without exception, have at least 100 billion or so stars in them. There's a whole lot of stuff out there in the universe. And so God creates all of those things that we would call outer space on the fourth day. The fifth day, which we uh, saw last time, he creates the, the atmosphere and the hydrosphere uh, and, and the oceans. He forms them. In other words, he's going to make the animal life that's going to go in them. Uh, and then finally, he's going to make the animal life that goes on the surface of the earth on the sixth day. So God is very sequentially uh, creating a, a habitable environment for all of these animals that he's going to create next. And so it makes absolute sense, if you're a wise creator, that you're not going to create a planet that's uninhabitable. Amen? If you're going to put animals on it, there's something animals need. There's something that humans need. Uh, most of you know that our atmosphere gets replenished partly by the vegetation that's on our planet. That's why we complain and whine and groan about the deforestation of the Amazon rainforest. Why? Because a vast majority of Earth's available oxygen is replenished by the photosynthesis that happens in our forests all over the globe. So if you're a wise God, you're going to create a planet, you're going to put plants on it before you put animals on it, not the other way around. And yet evolution says it's the opposite of that. So we're going to look tonight at some of the fossil record. We're going to look at some of the evidence as to what God's doing as we pick up now in verse 20 here in Genesis chapter 1. And God and all of his creatures, all of his critters, animal life in general. Verse 20 says here in Genesis 1, And then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures. Now it's important that you look at the wording that's said here. Because most of you have an understanding of the theory of evolution. The theory of evolution, is, as far as Darwin purported it to be, and as far as most people still teach today, if you believe in the evolution of life, it had to begin with basically unicellular, single-celled organisms, pretty typically what we, we would call a prokaryote, uh, and, and that small single-celled organism then over very long periods of time gets extremely wise and extremely creative and begins to make multiple-celled organisms. Those multiple-celled organisms then create larger cellular systems and ultimately larger uh, animals and so on and so forth. And by the time you get done, you end up with dinosaurs, you end up with elephants, you end up with man. In other words, it's the old single-celled organism, one-celled, the unicellular organism, algae, goo, to you. That's the basic plan as far as a Darwinian evolutionist is concerned. But it says here that instantaneously the waters abounded with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the face of the firmament. Remember the face Means, means that surface of the firmament of the heavens. And so this is talking about the atmospheric space. Remember, we were talking about the three levels of heaven. Uh, there's one that's directly above our planet. Then there's one that's above that, which is the basically outside of our atmosphere, all the way up in the ionosphere and the troposphere. The ionos ionosphere basically touches space. So out there exist basically ions and singular molecules that are kind of floating around. It's very warm at the outer edges of it. And then it gets extremely cold when it transitions into space. And so the, the animals that are being talked about here are the animals that fly in our atmosphere. So birds, how high do they go? Eh, 
every once in a while you'll get one up there 10, 15,000 feet, but typically below that. So these are animals that we can see that fly in our atmosphere. It goes on in verse 21, and so God created the great sea creatures. And again, very descriptive language is being used here, and we'll look at it a little bit more. But sea creatures could be pretty much anything and everything that's in the sea, and it would certainly include all of the things that evolutionists came, say came later. Because from an evolutionary viewpoint, just like with all things, you have to start with something very simple that's uncaused, unguided, and then that has to, over time, adapt. And it has to also store additional genetic information. That genetic information has to be passed on to something else. That something else must, by definition, get more complex. And as it gets more complex, it begins to grow and become a bigger organism. So you had to have Mr. or Mrs. Algae over here. And from Mr. and Mrs. Algae, you come up with Mr. or Mrs. Elephant. That's the only way it works. Otherwise, evolution can't happen. So did it actually happen that way? That's a question you can begin to ask yourself right now. As we look at animal life, is it even possible for that to happen? And is there any evidence that it actually did happen that way? Was it that we have fossil evidence that there were single-celled organisms that over long periods of time transitioned into smaller living things, and those smaller living things, which all of you have probably heard, that, that you go from something extremely tiny into a very, you know, like an earthworm, or you're going to end up with a millipede or possibly an arachnid or some kind of insect, and then ultimately those things are all going to eventually become mammals. Do we see that in the fossil record? Ask yourself that question, because we're going to look at it a little bit. And then he says, every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded. In other words, anything and everything that's in the water. That would be everything from jellyfish to whales. And notice he says again, according to their kind, genetically marked, genetically distinct, programmed with the DNA within their kind so that they can, all kinds of variation can happen within kind. You can have lots of different kinds of dolphins. There are a number of different species of those, even in our waters here. There's all kinds of sharks, but a shark's a shark. A shark is not a dolphin. We don't see dolphin sharks unless you watch Sci-Fi Channel. And then you might see shark NATO or whatever. But within their kind, he's going to repeat this. God's speaking to us very specifically about what we should see in our natural world. Every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And so the evening and the morning were the fifth day. And so beginning the sixth day. Now and then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle. And it's interesting that there's a differentiation here between those things which would ultimately become domesticated and those which would not. Cattle and creeping thing, basically every kind of animal, every beast of the earth, the larger animals on the face of the earth. And it doesn't say, well, I made, you know, 17 species of grasshopper and I made 47,000 species of earthworms. 
It just simply says that I made the things as they are, and every last one of those things did God make. And the reason that this is important in concept and theory when you're thinking through it, when you look at the natural world, you should be able to verify either what God said or, or not verify what God said. And I would report to you that you will find exactly what God said is true. And we're going to look at some of the things that at the end of tonight's study that we call living fossils. Things that are either really, really poor evolvers or evolution's not true. Each one of those things according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, and cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So God in animal life, God in all of animal life, God of the creatures of the sea, God of the air, and God of everything that dwells in the land. Now people always say the first thing that normally comes out of a scientist's mind is that's absolutely, utterly absurd. It's ridiculous. It, it's such a light treatment of something that's so complex it couldn't possibly be true. Have you ever heard the phrase that in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. It's found in the book of Proverbs. Because very often what happens is the more complex you make something, the more problems you create for yourself. And I would say to you that is exactly what's happened with evolutionary theory. The more you dig into it, the farther you go with it, the more you say about it, ultimately you begin to have to prove everything based on what you've already said. And I will tell you that is exactly the scientific world's problem right now with the basic theory of evolution. And it is also the problem that they have created by skipping over the very first tenets that are necessary to create any kind of life. And that's chemicals turning into anything that's living without outside intervention, the addition of information and or energy. And so let's look a little bit at this tonight. God simply makes a statement. He says, I created all these things, and, and I'm going to now populate, in essence, the surface of the earth because he has yet to make his premier creation. He's not created man yet. But if you're going to put man on the earth and man is going to inhabit the earth, the earth has to be fully habitable. In other words, it's, it's going to be a place where man is going to live. So you're not going to put man on the earth and then not have any food for him. You're not going to put man on the earth and have nothing for him to do. You're not going to torture man by putting him someplace that looks exactly the same. And so what you would expect out of a God who loves his creation is he's going to make it extremely diverse. He's going to make it absolutely purposeful. And then as he creates these things, he's going to do so in a way that we should be able to look at it and see exactly as Romans 1 says, that you can tell by the things that are made that there's a God. And if you can't see that by going to the zoo, then we need to go together. Because it is utterly amazing what the Lord has done in creating animal life. One deficiency thus far remains. The, the earth has no inhabitants. And so the Lord isn't going to just make a bunch of planets. Now imagine if you were God, and let's say you're a theistic evolutionist. And a theistic evolutionist is basically going to say that in fact the universe has been here for as far as we can tell, 13.7 billion years. 
The earth has been around for about 4.5 of those billion years. Sometimes, sometime around 4.5 billion years ago to about 3.7 billion years ago, the earth was being bombarded by meteorites and they brought all kinds of initial chemicals to the surface of the earth and they began reactions and over a whole bunch of time, you would get all kinds of diversity. Have you ever looked at the avian world and asked yourself why there are so many absolutely stunning birds with zero purpose as to why they even look the way they do? Because if evolution is true, it always favors the most simple explanation. It does not favor complexity. So you can never end up with something by necessity being more complex than its predecessor. It has to always be more simple and more survivable. And yet you have insanely beautiful birds that it doesn't help them fly. You know, they'll say, well, it helps them attract mates. Look, the ugliest birds on the face of the earth, the dodo bird has no problem finding mates. Okay? Rats have no problem finding mates because that is not something that's associated with beauty. It's something that's associated with chemistry and DNA. Yes, there are some basic attractions. But if you have two of anything, there had to be, by evolutionary standards, there had to at some point in time be one of them, not two of them. And that one of them somehow got programmed to be either a male or female so how many billions of years did it take for that? Well, the, we still need a male, and we don't have a male. We don't have a female. There are some questions that come to our minds that should cause us to look a little deeper at the evidence in our world. Isaiah forty-five eighteen. if you want to turn there. And again, these Old Testament verses are, are wonderful because God reinforces all the way along, all the way until the New Testament time to the book of Romans, that he did this stuff. It says in verse 18 of Isaiah 45, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who established it, and notice what it says, and did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. In other words, he had a purpose for creating this little planet, this very unique planet that is one of a kind. We've been searching the cosmos uh, for the better part of, of about the last 65 years or so, we've not yet found another habitable planet anywhere within uh, the search range of our current astronomical instruments who formed it, for I am the Lord and there is no other. And so God is using the, the purpose uh, of his creation to actually in, cause this planet to have something very unique because he's going to put his, his prime creation on this planet. He's going to make a spectacle of this planet in that sense. And when you look at Earth, it is so monumentally unique. When we search the cosmos and we're looking for other planets just like it, it doesn't have to be off by much to be completely uninhabitable. And if evolution began in outer space, which is the basic premise of evolution, in other words, even the cosmos itself has evolved so if it began in outer space, it began in a pool of chemicals, goo, in other words, and became you, then you shouldn't see any structure whatsoever in the universe. It should be utterly chaotic, and there should be no systems. There shouldn't be anything that says there's anything behind it. And yet the cosmos itself shows that design and a designer. 
And certainly animal life very specifically shows design and designer. So even the creation itself and what we know of it uh, shows that God was up to something, I believe. Introduction of animal life, as as a evolutionist would say, began with you know basically a a blob of protoplasm, something that we would call a, a living cell. But they can't tell us how we got the first living cell and why that living cell would store information and turn into something else. But it's an assumption, and I don't know about you, but if your basic assumption can't be proved, then everything that follows it also can't be proved, and yet it's taught in college, it's taught in high school, it is taught in junior high as a fact that somehow this primordial atmosphere that existed on this one planet is the one place in our entire galaxy that we have been able to see that could even possibly have life on it, that this one planet somehow had this seed of life that grew into every bit of biodiversity on our entire planet. Use your mind for a minute. I I don't know how many species of plants you have in your yard, but we have several dozen at least in ours. And we have tropical plants and subtropical plants. We've got fruit trees. We've got grasses. We have all kinds of stuff. And none of those things that if you leave them around, no matter how long you leave them around, are going to change into anything else. Grass will stay grass. Our plumerias will stay plumerias. Our orange tree is always going to be an orange tree, and there's a reason why. It's programmed that way. The DNA seals its unique identity, and it can't turn into anything else. If it does, we call that, in essence, an adaptation that would be less favorable. And so it would die. It'd be a mutation. And so your Bible begins to say that these animals, these moving creatures, the Hebrew word uh, it's a, it basically encompasses anything that moves, but it's all creeping things and crawling things. It's animal life in general. It's synonymous with another word, which is rems, which is a, those things that would be lower to the ground. In other words, everything that's big that walks on the ground, everything that's small that walks on the ground is stuff that walks on the ground. And so God's going to say something here, and he, he's going to say, I've put life into these things. And you'll notice the word living he says these things are living things. They're things that have life. He uses a very specific Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word nefesh. And that Hebrew, Hebrew word basically means that it has consciousness. It doesn't, it's not just alive. It actually has consciousness. In other words, it has some purpose, some meaning. We would say at some level it has a soul. But it's specifically talking about comp- its consciousness. So if you have animals, for instance, in, in your house, um, if, if you have cats, they don't have any consciousness. <laughs> well, maybe they do. I don't, you know. We have two cats, and I guess one of them kind of sort of does. But it, it's, you know what I'm saying. You, you know that they have some personality, right? They look at you. They meow at you. Your dogs come to you. That, you know, our, our Labradors love on you even when you're unlovable. They have a form of consciousness. And basically, all animal life has some form of that living. It's alive. It's got some consciousness. God created it that way. 
And so when you look at animal life, there's a reason that God cares about sparrows. Because he created it with living in it. He gave it to nefesh. It's a beautiful picture of God's purpose for it. So animal life was not simply brought forth like plant life was. Plant life was brought forth. He speaks into the animal life some living. Even lizards will look at you like, hmm, I'm, I'm out of here. They have, they have some life in them. Earthworms. You ever tried to catch an earthworm? They got some living in them. They somehow sense they know something and they begin to wiggle and try and get, they don't just lay there, hi, I'm an earthworm, pick me up and put me on a hook. There's some living in them. God creates living organisms that have some form of ability to relate to their surroundings. That's all God says about this. He's going to create great whales. He's going to make these, these large creatures, living creatures with a living soul. Uh, he uses the, the term great animals or great, and we can look at it in a lot of different ways. But I think he's really speaking specifically in this case about those larger animals, which is exactly the opposite of the, of the created order as far as evolutionists would say, that, that the great whales came last. They would have evolved last because they're the largest, they're the most complex, they have the highest order of thinking, all those kind of things. And yet God says, look, I just created all these things. I made them exactly as they are. I put them on the face of the earth, and they have stayed that way. And when we look at the fossil record, it is remarkable how many things that supposedly are tens, if not hundreds of millions of years old, that have not evolved a single bit from the fossil record. Not even a minuscule amount. One of the beauties of, of what we can now do in studying DNA is we're able to take the fossilized, uh, even in some cases fossilized bone, but in, in many cases fossilized amber, which is tree sap that's hardened. There's a mosquito, there's an ant inside of it. There's still DNA inside there. We're now extracting it, and guess what? It's exactly the same as the ant DNA that we have today. It's exactly the same as mosquito DNA. And why God allowed mosquitoes to come into existence, I think they're part of the curse. But we now know there's no differentiation between a 145 million year old, supposedly, mosquito and one that probably lives at your house right now. So are they poor evolvers? You see, evolution works by change, slow over periods of time, and it is a necessity that nothing is taken out of the loop. Because as far as an evolutionist is concerned, you have this smaller and less complex animal life that's turning into the complex forms. And so you have to have the ability to say that they transition from one to the other. And if they don't transition, you find evidence there's no transitional fossils, there's no transitional life, then you have a problem with the whole concept that that ever happened. Marine creatures being created before animal life. And so God uses a couple of terms here that are important for us. And the first one, we've looked at this before, but the, the term created versus made, the Hebrew word bara or athah. What, was it something that God made out of nothing? Is it brand new? Is it created? And what he does here is he creates animals with the nefesh. He puts life into them. That is something new. 
But he goes on to make, in other words, take things that are already done, animal life, and he then creates something that's different from them. And so he simply says that these things are, in essence, of the same unit pieces that you would find in other things, but he makes something new out of them. So it's just a slight differentiation, and it does make a difference. Because in one sense, you have animals now with a living soul. They have a consciousness. You could look at it that way. They have the ability in, in some way to reason, to react to their environment, to react to one another. God creates that group of living animals. And then he just makes a lot of diversity with that which he has already created. That's in essence what has happened here. And so he first creates animals, and then he makes additional animals. So when you look at animal life, you would expect to find some fairly consistent components because God first created them, and then he made some more of them that are like the ones that he first created. So when you look at a horse, there's all kinds of different types of horses. When you look at a dog, there's all kinds of different kinds of dogs. When you look at cats, same thing. You have one cat, you have a whole bunch of cats. They're, they're different in their height. They're different in the length of their legs. They're different in the length of their fur. They're different in their coloration, but they're still cats. So he creates life, and then he makes all kinds of diversity from the things that he's already made. So God's telling us the truth. And he says that I do these things in their own kind. I seal them, in essence, genetically. And the reason I'm going to talk to you a little bit about this is probably most of you, if you've taken any type of biology class, including high school biology, you've probably looked at a couple of examples. One of them is Darwin's infamous tree of life, and the other is Ernst Haeckel's embryo diagram to where you see all of these similarities, including that one point in time you all had gill slits. Everybody seen, you guys seen those? They're in your textbook. Well, I'll show them to you in case you haven't seen them because you'd want to see these things. Now, again, you probably, if you're sitting there in the back row, you might not be able to see these. That is actually Darwin's original tree of life. Uh, that came out of his notes, and, and it's, it shows supposedly how every bit of life started with a unicellular organism at the bottom, and then ultimately, this is his concept. There were branches, eventually, that all life would come out of these basic component parts, and so you would find all of everything that is living able to be related to this, this tree of life. This is a little more complex version of that same tree. Starts with unicellular organisms at the bottom, works its all way up there to Mr. Darwin himself at the top. The reason this is important is if you notice down here, there's all kinds of things like jellyfish and starfish and sea anemones and all kinds of stuff down there at the bottom. And you notice there's actually only one trunk that goes up through the center there. That's because everything goes from that blue-green algae. So you're related to jellyfish, you're related to sea anemones, you're related to squids, you are related to octopi, that's octopuses times multiples, you're related to mollusks and snails, you are related to virtually anything and everything. You used to be goo. You were really slimy. And then all of a sudden, a couple of subtle changes, and you turned in. Notice in the middle there, you probably turned into a fish at some point in time. And then if you were really not good, God probably made you out of a spider. And as you go up this thing, it gets more and more complex. And then finally, you have the dinosaurs, you have alligators, you have more advanced reptilian creatures. And at the top, you start to have all these mammals and the, and the more highly advanced 
life forms as far as an evolutionist would concern himself. Now, the reason that this is important is you should be able to find evidence of that someplace in the world in the fossil record. Because that took billions of years. And if it took billions of years and you have all kinds of jellyfish floating around the sea, you ought to find tons of fossilized jellyfish. Except jellyfish are made out of goo, so they don't fossilize very well. Or you ought to at least be able to find a whole bunch of fish that were once a fish and then somehow turned into a reptile. You ought to at least find one or two of those. Or maybe you find a reptile that somehow turned into a bird. There ought to be a couple of those. You ought to at least find one. Here's the problem. There's not a single transitional fossil found anywhere in the fossil record. There's no reptile bird. I'm going to look at Archaeopteryx next because that was used forever uh, for a better part of 100 years to say that that did happen. And, and see, the reason the whole evolutionary theory starts falling apart, let's go old Ernst Hackel here, said that basically if you look at everything, they're all exactly the same. And so he drew all these embryonic pictures, and in his, you have gill slits on every one, and every last one of them looked like it was a fish at some point in time. But these are the real embryos of all those animals. So that's a lamprey on that end, and that's a human on that end. And when you look at the embryonic development of these things, not only are they not similar, they're completely dissimilar. And yet his theory was used for over 100 years as truth. There is nothing similar between you and a lamprey. Lampreys those sucker things on sharks. You know what I'm talking about. So we don't find any of this anywhere in the natural world. So when you look at our world, you do not find any evidence. There's no molecules to man. There's no Darwin's tree. There's no insects that were once one kind of insect turning into other kind of insect. There's no reptiles that turn into other kinds of reptiles. There's no reptile-bird hybrid. Probably almost every one of you. It's a very nice museum-quality lie over there. That's an actual fossil of an Archaeopteryx. And for years, almost a hundred years, it was believed that that was half lizard and half bird. The only problem is now with electron microscopes, we've been able to tell that those are not scales, those are actually feathers, that's actually just a bird. It's not part lizard. That's the index, that is the proof that lizards came from birds. That's the only proof. And it's been disproven. So when people talk about the animal world, they're talking about things that absolutely do not exist anywhere in the world in an evolutionary sense. And so when I talk to, especially high school students, these are the ones they pull out. Well, you know Archaeopteryx. You see a scanning electron microscope of that fossil and you'll see nothing but feathers. Here's the other thing that blows people's minds. Because, by the way, all of these things, as you look at the fossil record, you will not find any evidence of those things. But what you will find is a whole lot of things that are really horrible evolvers. Like really bad evolvers. Like the index fossils of most of the paleological time periods. When we talk about those things that are ancient, 
And probably most of you, and we'll get to it last, know about the Cambrian period. It was the longest period of, of supposed change from one thing to another. But if you go to New Zealand, um, the, the late Cretaceous period, basically about 145 to about 70 million years ago, if you're an evolutionist, the index fossil for that period was a tuatara. It's a type of a lizard. Bummer on them is there's live ones that are still in New Zealand. So is it the index fossil from a period about 145 million years ago, or is it just a creature that you still find in New Zealand? The Lepidarchus crustacean, it's a, it's a little mollusk. The index fossil of the Devonian period, almost 400 million years ago as far as an evolutionist is concerned. You find that fossil, that's how old the rocks are. Real bummer, because those are also still alive. You can find them all over the ocean floor, almost every, all but one ocean in the entire world. So of the seven different seas, they're found in six of the seven. Still alive today. Did they evolve or did they not evolve? Here in California, you all know that we have sequoia trees. Amen? They come from a specific branch called metasequoia. They found in the Burgess Shale deposits that are up in Canada the exact DNA of the exact sequoia that we still have here in California. So if you extract the DNA out of a coal seam, which there's still actually plant material in there, uh, far as a, it's supposed to be at least 20 million years old, we still have them growing in California. Exact same size. Nepalina mollusk, same study. 280 million years old. They exist all over the world. The lingua, it's a brachiopod. It's a shellfish about that big. Supposed to be 450 million years old. Do they evolve or do they not evolve? And then there's the mighty tribalite. I love that. I actually have one. are found in the Indian Ocean today. And yet they are the index. They're the fossil. When you find that fossil in a rock layer, that rock layer is automatically at least 540 to 485 million years old. So are they three weeks old or 540 to 485 million years old? Because if evolution works, it should work all the time. If evolution doesn't work, then you should find no evidence of evolution not working. Guess which of those two things you find? You find no evidence of evolution working, period, anywhere in the fossil record. And in fact, you find a whole bunch of living fossils. The same is true for ants. The same is true for grasshoppers. The same is true for mosquitoes. The same is true for all kinds of different fossilized plant materials. This incredible Burgess Shale deposit, which is up in Canada, has almost half of the existing living plant life on planet Earth exists today in fossilized form. So what happened? Did it kind of stall? Did it kind of hang out for a few million years? Did it stop evolving? There's all kinds of theories because the evidence 
shows us that it does not, has not, did not evolve, that it all came on the face of the earth at roughly the same period of time and has existed since that time to this time wherever it exists on planet earth. What you would expect to see if there was a giant flood, which we're going to get to here in the book of Revelation, is that those things would have been buried very, very rapidly and they would all roughly be in the same layer. And that's where we're going to finish up our time tonight. Back in December 4th, 1995, this incredible news flash goes out. It's on the cover of Time magazine that there is this supposed profusion of life, uh, some 540 to 485 million years ago called the Cambrian Explosion. And so, so insane was the information that was coming out of it that the leading evolutionist of the time, Dr. Stephen Jay Gould being one of them, uh, Dr. Richard Dawkins being another of them, began to write about these things, and they had to come up with an explanation. Stephen Jay Gould said this, wrote this in his uh, The Wonderful Life, The Burgess Shale and the Nature of Life. So this is a book that he wrote, and I'm quoting from it. The most salient feature of life has been the stability of its bacterial mode from the beginning of the fossil record until today with little doubt into all of future time, so long as the earth endures, there has been little or no change. Does that kind of sound like circular reasoning to you? So if all life came from unicellular life, in other words, a blue-green algae somehow turned into something a little more complex, and on and on and on and on it goes, then you should expect that when you find blue-green algae today, it would not be the same blue-green algae that it was 540 million years ago. Bummer is, it's the exact same blue-green algae as it was 540 million years ago. So they're trying to figure out what this, what this is all about. And so they start looking at the rest of the fossil record. And, and they came up with some incredibly difficult problems to solve. So he goes on to say this, in one of the most crucial and enigmatic episodes in the history of life, nearly all animal phyla made their first appearance in the fossil record at essentially the same time, an interval of some five million years. In other words, what they're saying is, Nothing evolved, and then all of a sudden it appeared. Am I missing something here? They said this is what the Cambrian explosion is all about. Prominent British evolutionist Dr. Richard Dawkins made this comment, quoted in his book called The Blind Watchmaker. He said, what we find is already in the fossil record an advanced state of evolution from the very first time that they appear. It's as, it's as though they were just planted there without any evolutionary history. Needless to say, this appearance of sudden planting has delighted creationists. Yeah, because that's exactly what the Bible says. That's Dr. Richard Dawkins, probably the most preeminent evolutionist that may be next to Charles Darwin. And he's been the standard bearer. They go on, he says, we really have a problem because we just discovered two fossil fish in China which are exactly the same fossils that we should not find. 
Indeed, the oldest fossils of land-dwelling animals, millipedes dating back 425 million years, are incredibly archaic life forms, and yet they are indistinguishable from groups of the same animal living today. So did they turn into lizards? Did they turn into birds? What did they turn into and then finally turn into you? They went on, did an entire study. They compared other life forms. Again, I'm quoting from Dr. Dawkins. We compared other life forms, and insects are actually slow to evolve in their new families. They're even slower to go extinct. And in fact, some 84% of all insect families alive are exactly as they were 100 million years ago. These are the leading evolutionists of our time. And they're saying, Houston, we have a problem. They went on to talk about bees, ants, cicadas, beetles, termites, cockroaches, all arachnid species, myriapods. And as they they began to look at the DNA evidence, especially that which is trapped in amber, they found we have no excuse. Basically, all life as we know it, at least in its basic genus and its basic species, its basic phyla, almost entirely appeared all at once in the fossil record. What did our passage say? Remember the question I asked you? What did our passage say? Our passage says that God created everything exactly as it is in a single solar day. And he put it all on the face of the earth pretty much at the same time. And that is exactly what the fossil evidence shows. That's the question that Dr. Richard Dawkins and Dr. Stephen Jay Gould can't answer. They have to come up with some mental gymnastics to work their way around it. They went on to talk about dinosaurs. So astonishingly, we're finding the fossils of dinosaurs buried in the same exact areas where we were thinking they should not be. We've always wondered why there were so many dragon legends all over the globe. It now appears that dinosaurs might be a little younger than we thought. You see, when you start talking over these things, in essence, what the fossil record shows is exactly what Time Magazine said. From that cover issue, new discoveries show that life as we know it began in an amazing biological frenzy that changed our planet almost overnight. (laughs) Is that nuts? (laughs) The subheading, just inside the front article, for billions of years, simple creatures like plankton, bacteria, algae ruled the earth, and then suddenly life got very complicated. (laughs) Anybody else find humor in that? So what is it? Was it billions of years in blue-green algae and very slow change over long periods of time? Or is it exactly what scientists now admit, which is pretty much every bit of life that we have on the planet appeared all at one point in time, exactly as your Bible says? 
It's obviously the latter of those two things. And so now they're trying to figure out how to take the evidence and once again slant it in such a way that they can try and save the theory. And they won't be able to, just like they haven't up to this point with anything else. The fossils that are transitional or missing, they're going to remain missing because there aren't any. Darwin's excuse that he made was that we don't have the evidence yet. We've been searching for the evidence for ever since Darwin, a hundred nearly fifty years. And there's not a single do you know how many thousands of paleontologists there are on the planet Earth that are looking for these so called transitional fossils and nobody can find one? You know how many billions of dollars have been spent on research trying to find things that were once one thing that are now something else? And trying to explain that this is somehow how you turned from goo to you. And yet your Bible just simply makes a statement that in a single solar day, God created every last one of the animals that's in the ocean and every last one of the animals that's in the air and every last one of the animals that's on the surface of the earth. And he did them all at the same time and he made them exactly as they are and he sealed them within their kind. When you look at the fossil record, that is exactly what you find. So either God was right, and once again he said, bang, and there's all the animals, which Time Magazine agrees with him. Richard Dawkins agrees with him. Stephen Jay Gould agrees with him. They can't figure out how, but they have now said, Basically, all life appeared at a very short period of time, and we have no explanation for it. Brothers and sisters, you have an explanation for it. God said it, it happened, and that's the way it went down. Because we can't tell how God did all of the little subtle things that have been done, it doesn't mean what he said wasn't true. It just means we can't explain all the subtle things that he did. but I believe our biblical explanation is way better than the scientific one from an evolutionist because they have been proven to be absolutely incorrect because there is no proof that long periods of time plus unicellular organisms turns into you. If you believe that, maybe you are that really smart ape that they were talking about. Darwin did not envision major evolutionary change happening fast. Matter of fact, his whole theory hangs on the fact that exactly the opposite of that's true. Had to take long periods of time. God says it didn't take long periods of time. I did it overnight. That's what the fossil record shows. Trust the Lord. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you We thank you, God, for the overwhelming evidence that what your word declares is true. And so, Lord, we just worship you. We thank you for telling us enough that when we stare at the globe that we live on every day, we can find the hand of the Creator. And we are blessed, Lord, so blessed that our faith has an element of reason to it. We still have to have the faith. Lord, that faith is very reasonable. 
There's some amazing scientific minds that have said you did exactly what you said. There are others that are coming to the place that they don't understand how, how their theories are falling apart, but they are. And so, God, we pray that you would use your creation to speak to people. God, that they would stare at the stars and wonder. They'd look at the ocean, see all the diversity of life, and just be amazed by your goodness. Lord, we bless you for loving us the way you do and making such a beautiful place for us to live. Lord, sorry we've messed it up so bad. And we know that one day you're going to make a new heaven and a new earth. Lord, you're going to give us a thousand years to live on this planet the way you intended, and we're grateful for that. In the meantime, God, as we talk to people, would we not back down, Lord? We wouldn't let people push us into a corner that our, that our faith is, is foolishness. It's not foolishness. And in fact, our faith is a far more reasonable answer than the theories that are floating around out there. Thank you for that. Bless us as your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.